0: Good morning, church. Thanks for being here with us today. Uh, my name's Rodney. I'm one of the pastors of Rooted Church, and uh, it's a, a great honor to be with you here today on this third week of Advent. It's crazy to think that we're already at the third week. Like, man, I hope y'all got your shopping done. It's coming up on us quick. We're coming to the end of this special season, and uh, it's been a great blessing to get to celebrate it together uh, with all of you here in this room. This morning, again, it's our third week of Advent. So I kind of want to recap what we've discussed um, over these past few weeks. Two weeks ago, on the first Sunday of Advent, we considered Samson the lowercase savior. Last week, Pastor Jeremiah shared of Samuel the sacrifice. And today, we're continuing to look at the miraculous births of Scripture as we lead up to the ultimate miraculous births. And today, we're going to reflect on the story of John the prophet. And the great theme that I hope to convey to you this morning is the absolute divine sovereignty of our God. Christmas is supposed to be a season of joy and happiness. And we work really hard to portray that. We're all putting our best pictures on Instagram. We got the sweaters. We want to portray that it's the season like that. But the truth is, if we're all really honest, it's often a season of great anxiety. It's a season where we're busier than we should be, and we often feel overwhelmed. There's so many things to do, so many places to go, and so much brokenness to contend with. It's crazy how the brokenness in our families and in our lives tends to rise to the surface this time of year. And this week, as I've studied this text, I've been reminded that I am only anxious when I fail to believe that God is absolutely sovereign. And this morning, I want to make the appeal, based on this text, that God is sovereign over our sorrow, He is sovereign over our salvation, He is sovereign over our sanctification, And ultimately, he is sovereign over our story. So let's begin with his sovereignty over our sorrow by looking once again at verses 5 through 13, where it says this. In the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. This passage introduces us to Zechariah and Elizabeth, and it begins by telling us that they lived in the days of Herod the Great, who ruled from 37 to 4 BC. Now Herod was called a king, but he was really a puppet king. He had been put in power by Rome. Yes, politics have always been shady. And though he was a king, the truth is he was controlled by the emperor Augustus who used Herod for his bidding. So because of this situation, Herod was a very paranoid ruler. He was paranoid. He was cruel. He killed at least one wife and at least two of his sons that we know of because of his paranoia of losing his power. So as you might imagine... This was not a peaceful time in Israel. God's people were defeated and they were forced to watch this foreign power occupy the land that God had given to them. This was a season of waiting in which the people of God especially longed for deliverance. And so that brings us to this couple. In Elizabeth, it says we have one of the daughters of Aaron. This means that she was a direct descendant of Moses' brother and the father of the priesthood. Zechariah was a priest of Abijah's division, which means he also traced his roots back to Aaron, and his family had served in the temple since the time of King David. His family is recorded in 1 Chronicles 24.10 amongst the line of priests. So this is where we find Zechariah serving, fulfilling his duty here in verse 8. Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, He was chosen by Lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Only descendants of Aaron could serve as priests. And these priests served at the temple for two one-week periods each year. On this particular day, however, by the casting of a lot, Zechariah had been chosen to officiate over the daily sacrificial offering. This was an extraordinary honor. By this time in history, there were as many as 20,000 priests. So you only got to serve in this specific way one time in your life. This was the highest honor you could really experience in the life of a priest. Every morning and every evening, a sacrifice was made for the nation. And this sacrifice had to be perfect. It had to be a perfect spotless lamb without spot or blemish. And before this sacrifice was offered, incense was burned on the altar. The act was done to glorify God. The idea was that you were offering this pleasant aroma to pave the way for the sacrifice that was about to be offered. And then the priest would pray for God's people as the multitude of them gathered outside to pray. This was the absolute height of Zachariah's priesthood. It was the highest honor he had ever known. This is especially true for him because the truth is Zechariah's life had been a bit short on honor. You see, the scripture tells us Zechariah didn't have any children. And there were actually some in this day who felt that one should be disqualified from the priesthood for not having children. And this is because believers have always conflated God's approval with his blessing. As humans, we associate approval with gifts. If you do good at your job, you get a raise, you get a bonus. If you get good grades, you get ice cream. We, Dustin sent uh, our team an email this week and made note that we can blame all of this on the legalism of Santa Claus, the ultimate legalist. If you do good, you get something in return. It's ingrained within us. However, the approval of God is displayed not in our earthly blessings, but in his son, Jesus Christ. Our time here. What well, something we can see and be reminded of from the life of Zechariah and Elizabeth is that our time here is filled with sorrows and trials. Yet because of the gospel, because of God's approval granted us through Jesus, our trials, our days of going without, they have been redeemed and are now used by God for a special purpose. When the thing that you have put your faith in is lost or perhaps the thing you have prayed for and desired is withheld, you don't just suffer the loss of that thing, you also suffer the loss of the identity and security that it did or could have provided you in your mind. And when this happens, because of Jesus, you are able to more clearly see your dependence on God to sustain and define you. The deepest sorrow of Zachariah's life had been preparing him for this special day, this special moment. When in the midst of worship and sacrifice, the Lord would reveal his sovereign plan to this faithful priest. All of the events of his life, every joy and every sorrow had been leading him to this very moment. Continuing the text, it says, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. He's in the temple just praying. He'd been looking to this day. He's praying to the Lord, and this angel shows up. And I want to make special note I'll just give it just a second. This is not some cute, chubby, precious moments angel. Like that's that anybody who like describes an angel encounter in that day. I'm always in that way, I'm always questioning of that because I never see anything in scripture but an angel shows up and you just fall down terrified. And so that's what happens. Just This little sliver of God's glory revealed in this messenger catches his attention in a way that few other things would. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. I want to pay a little bit of attention to that phrase. Your prayer has been heard the angel says. Let's talk about that for a moment. The angel does not lead us to wonder as to the prayer that has been heard. The angel reveals that Zechariah has prayed for a son and that today that prayer is being granted. What's interesting about this angel's message is that I do not believe he is referencing a recent prayer, but actually an old one. Some speculate that perhaps Zechariah was praying for a son that very day in the temple And the angel just immediately responds, but I don't think that's the case. For one, the prayer of the priest in this context would typically not have been so personal in nature, but this would have been a prayer and appeal for the multitude of the people of God. Secondly, we see a little ways down in this passage that it seems like Zechariah had long accepted this prayer as a lost cause due to he and Elizabeth's age. So I don't think that... He was praying for this recently. I think the angel's showing up and saying, Hey, that prayer from way back then, God heard that. And this means that on this special day, the angel shows up and reveals that this prayer prayed long ago had been heard by the Father. And in his sovereign timing, this is the day in which it would be answered. Could you imagine the feelings of Zachariah as he's trying to process all that is happening in this moment? On this special day that he had waited for his whole life, an angel shows up, scares the daylights out of him, and then this same angel reveals that God has chosen now, towards the end of his life, to give them him the son he had always longed for. This is a lot to take in. I imagine that Zechariah had prayed countless times for a child in his earlier years. I imagine that is one who prayed that prayer desperately for nearly a decade before God granted us our first child. I imagine he had spent many late nights begging the Lord to provide. I imagine he had watched earlier in his life with agony and grief as he looked upon his wife and her, her grief and he struggled with his inability to give her the one thing she wanted above all else. I imagine this struggle continued for decades. Until over time, it was talked about less and less frequently, and eventually it faded into the kind of grief that is stowed away deep down in our souls. And then, at the direction of the Lord, a messenger of God comes and drags it out into the open. Like with Samson's mother, God is not shy about calling our deepest sorrows out into the open and then declaring their place within his sovereign plan of our redemption. For God is not only sovereign over our sorrow, he is sovereign over our salvation. Let's read 14 through 17. The angel says, And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. Zechariah may not have realized it in this moment, but this angel's message is far more astounding than just one miraculous birth. This angel's message is that the first advent was coming to an end. A redeemer was coming, and this son named John would prepare the world for the long-expected arrival of the Messiah. This was not merely God preparing for his best attempt. It was not a plan to try something. The messenger's announcement of God's plan was a certain truth. This baby, who had done nothing good nor bad, will be great before the Lord for God's sovereign purpose. Now, this is not because... God looked into the future and saw that John was going to be a pretty good guy, would make good choices, and would be the one who should be used in this way. This declaration of goodness was far more profound than that, for the angel reveals he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. God declared this baby his, declared him good in the eyes of God, and put in him the gift of the Holy Spirit, while he was still in his mother's womb. Don't misunderstand this. This baby belongs to God and loved Jesus even in the womb. Scripture makes this abundantly clear later in this chapter when a pregnant Elizabeth is greeted by the mother of our Savior and this spirit-filled baby leaps in his mother's womb at the sound of her voice. This baby would be able to know when the presence of the Lord was in his midst, even when they were both in the womb. This is astounding. I want to pause for a minute at this astounding piece of scripture and consider a few implications of this marvelous truth. Number one, because of this, all life matters. For the Christian, this verse means that we are to be unapologetically pro-life because life comes from God. Only he gives life, and he is fully able to withhold it. For the Christian, there is no such thing as an accidental birth. Every human conceived in their mother's womb is a testimony of God's providential grace and has life only because God said so. Even in the womb, this baby is not beyond God's reach as God declares that baby his own. Which points us to the second point. Salvation truly belongs to the Lord. Psalm 3.8 declares that very truth boldly. And here we see its meaning on full display. Our God is sovereign in saving sinners. This baby would not be able to avoid inheriting a sin nature. He inherited that nature. But God has declared before He is even born that He will be great before the Lord because of the graciousness of God. Prior to Advent, amongst rooted, we finished uh, nearly a year in the book of Hebrews. And towards the end, we spent a good deal of time considering the story of Jacob and Esau, which is referenced a good deal in Hebrews. In many ways, the favor that the angel declares over John reminds me of the way that Scripture speaks of Jacob. Jacob's mother is told that he would lead and be loved by God. And it says in Romans nine eleven, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good nor bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Thus, baby John's greatness is not a result of him. It's not a result of anything this baby in the womb did. He is great on the basis of the one who he would spend his life preparing the way for. In his sovereignty, God made sure that John would be rescued in such a way that he would be abundantly equipped to declare the Savior to whom salvation belongs. John would have no issue in acknowledging that salvation didn't belong to him because John belonged to God before he could even say his first word. It couldn't be earned by him. And this would be incredibly important in the life of John as people were going to confuse him with Elijah and the Messiah himself. John would spend all of his days pointing to Jesus because he fully understood the third implication of this verse, which is we are dependent on God to save sinners. God chose to make John great, not on the basis of Zechariah's ability as a father, or Elizabeth as a mother, or of any other priests, but at the will of the great high priest, John was made great. In this story, you and I are reminded that God saves people. And while this should be an obvious statement for a Christian, it can actually be quite difficult to acknowledge. For me, there is nowhere in my life where this is harder, more of a struggle than in my role as a parent. This scene puts me back in my proper place as one fully dependent on God to open the eyes of my children. My job, and what I, I take from this text, my job as a parent, my job as a Christian is to stack that wood. I stack the wood. I put each log in place as best I can. And then I go to that pile of wood, and I stuff it full of kindling. I put every little last piece of kindling I can put in that wood, but I do not carry matches. I don't make fire. God has to ignite the spark. God has to open the eyes of the blind. This is what it means that salvation belongs to the Lord. This reality is demonstrated mightily in John's life. John couldn't create spark, but he stacked kindling and he pointed people towards the one who was coming with fire. And the God who brings fire did not rescue this baby for this work because he was dependent on him, but because he loved us and because he loved John. When I was a kid, I told you before, I grew up in southern Wyoming. I was raised by a roughneck oil-filled hand, and my dad, when he wasn't working in the, the plant, He made custom-made knives. My dad was a really, really talented knife maker. This was before the internet was big, so he made these knives in his garage, and then I traveled with him throughout the country. You had to go to gun and knife shows. That was the only way a knife maker could sell back then. My dad was really good, and I loved just being with him in his shop. Now, when I was young, I used to spend those cold winter months just sitting in my dad's shop while he built knives, and I would be in there, probably four, five, six years old, and I'm just banging pieces of metal together, banging blocks of wood, stringing everything out, making a huge mess of the place, and I would have told you, I'd have told anybody who walked up to our booth at that knife show, I was an essential part of this operation. I mean, my dad was pretty dependent on me fulfilling that role. If I wasn't making a mess of everything, I don't know how he could do this. As I got older, though, The veil was taken back from my eyes, and I realized my dad didn't need me to run that business. He didn't need me to make knives. In fact, I slowed him down, but it was incredibly important to my dad that I was there nonetheless, not because he needed me, but because he loved me, and because he loved me, he slowed down the process and wanted me to sit with him at his workbench. Because he wanted me to learn to love the things that he loved. And he wanted to spend time with me. And in the same time, God was calling John then, before he was even born, and he calls you now to come and sit with him at his workbench of grace as we fulfill the Great Commission. Through the gift of the Holy Spirit that guided him, John would spend his whole life sitting alongside God at his workbench of grace, witnessing the Father's work of redemption, and announcing the coming of the one who would bring it to completion, not because God needed him, but because God loved him, wanted him to be with him. This was God's sovereign plan all along. The people of God were afraid. As Dustin had mentioned, they were afraid God had forgotten them because up until this encounter with Zechariah, God hadn't spoken nearly 400 years. But get this, the last words God had spoken were recorded in the final verses of Malachi 400 years earlier. And they are repeated in the first words that he speaks here in Zechariah, verses 16 through 17. He repeats the last words the people of God had hear him speak when he says, And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord, the people prepared. That was God's plan all along. He ends on that note, and when he comes back onto the scene, when it's time, he repeats the very quote he had said in Malachi, "Because like Elijah, John would be used by God to prophesy, to tell of the Savior who was coming. God had not been hiding. He had been preparing the world for the end of the first advent, the coming of the Messiah. Make no mistake. God is never removed from his people. When it feels like he's distant, he's working. Even now, when so much feels broken and lost, God is preparing his people for the end of the second advent and the coming of our rightful king. But first, he has some work to do in order to prepare his church for his return. And in this text, we see that this is also true of John's mother and father. They would need to be prepared for their part in God's plan. Now on this day, it was Zechariah's turn to sit at the workbench of grace where God would first give him the humility and faith he would need to raise this cute little baby prophet. For God is also sovereign over our sanctification. In verse 18, Zechariah said to the angel, "'How shall I know this? "'I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years.'" Now, when we first read this response, this angel shows up that terrifies you and you're going to get lippy with him? Like, that's crazy. Like, my first response to this is, are you an idiot? Like, what is going on here? But if I remember his humanity, if I put myself in that place, if I consider the weight of everything that has led up to this moment in his life, well, then I can actually relate to Zechariah a little bit. Zachariah's deepest hurt had been brought out And he has to be thinking, why now? Where were you 30 years ago when I pleaded with you? You ignored my prayer countless times. That has to be how he feels on the inside. So he says, essentially, how am I supposed to believe this when Elizabeth and I are far too old? How could this be happening now? And God, he knew that Zechariah would respond this way because God was there through all of those dark days. He was there each time Zechariah pleaded so many years before. And he felt the weight of each tear Elizabeth had ever shed. So he knew full well that Zechariah was going to be at an absolute loss this day. Zechariah and Elizabeth were described earlier in this text as righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Zechariah was a faithful man. Despite his hurt and disappointment, he had never ceased to stop serving the Lord. Yet here, we are reminded that no man reaches a point where he does not have more to learn and more humility to be gained. God intends to do a great work with Zechariah, and thus he must first do a great work in him. To be the father of John was a special call. Zechariah and Elizabeth would be expected to model a strong faith, And in this moment, Zechariah's faith was tested and the point of weakness was revealed. So in grace, God prepared this angel with what Zechariah would need. And this angel says in verse 19, the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple and when he came out, he was unable to speak to them and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute and when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. This angel Cuts to the chase, promptly reminds Zechariah of his smallness. He essentially says, do you know who I am? Do you know who sent me? In a moment of emotion, Zechariah had forgotten who he was, and more importantly, he had forgotten who God was, and God is gracious to remind him here in this moment. Christian, my appeal to you this morning, as we consider what just happened to Zechariah is do not make the lord close your mouth god is gracious and as dustin said this morning as a believer you are invited to come to him in humility with your struggles and your questions. That's the reason the Psalms exist, is to teach us how we can pray and to see that it is okay to pray prayers of despair. It is perfectly appropriate to bring my struggles before the Lord and acknowledge my lack of understanding, to pray prayers like the Father who says to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. However, you are not allowed to challenge him as if you know something he does not. As if his words can't mean exactly what they say because they offend you. As if his command can't ask you to give up, fill in the blank, because, well, that thing makes me happy. You cannot do that. The hard truth is if you love anything more than God, if you value any identity above your identity as simply being his it may be that the most gracious thing God can do for you is to take that away so that you might see clearly again. The worst thing that could ever happen for you is for God to let you achieve everything you ever wanted and have all the desires of your life fulfilled, absolutely void of ever having to love and trust Him. If God loves you, He will not let that happen. This is also true here of a Christian blinded by grief. If you believe your grief is so deep that he cannot heal it, if you believe your sin is so great that he cannot redeem it, then you, like Zechariah, have forgotten who he is, and you need to be corrected. And if he loves you, he will correct you through drastic measures if necessary. That is the grace of God revealed in the midst of our sorrows and hurts. On this day, Zechariah did not need to speak to the people as their priest, and so God made it so. He needed to sit quietly and remember who his God is and what he could do because far greater things lie ahead, and God's preparing Zechariah for that. And Jeremiah will preach on those greater things next week. Christian, as we prepare to close this morning, by looking at the final two verses of this text today. Remember that the God who created the universe, who split the Red Sea, who wove you together in your mother's womb, he is ultimately sovereign over your story. These final two verses say, after these days his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Elizabeth conceived a child. This birth was miraculous and that God declared it to be and that he called this child his own. However, this child was born through the normal process. God has gifted a husband and a wife. Zechariah would lay with his wife and the Lord would grant them a child that he would call his own. This is an important distinction as we prepare for the final week's Advent message. For today, though... I want to leave you with the final two verses where we see Elizabeth's posture toward the Lord, a posture far different than her husband's. Unlike Zechariah, Elizabeth's response to the Lord's blessing is humble joy. For five months, we see that Elizabeth stayed away from people. She pulled back from the obligations of the world and she simply cherished the gift that she had been given in the presence of her Lord. Basking in the Lord's blessing, basking in his presence, this is how Elizabeth prepared for her special calling. This is a far superior way to be sanctified than to be humiliated and muted. Both are effective, but one is far more delightful. Follow the path of Elizabeth. My friend, our faith is strengthened In the presence of the one in whom it is anchored. You can accept the invitation of God to come and sit with him beside the still waters as Elizabeth does, or you can be carried to the still waters after you faint of thirst. Elizabeth finds healing as one who had an unfortunate condition caused by having an imperfect post-fall body, and the broken world she lived in looked at her with reproach as a result. Yet for five months, Elizabeth now sits and marvels at God's redemptive plan. He had remedied her unfortunate condition and her response is deep gratitude and deeper love for him. You ever notice that Christmas always seems to be a little bit disappointing? I know, I know, that's a very awkward transition, but bear with me here for a moment. Sometimes it feels like the older you get, Just as an adult, and I assume each year that goes by, Christmas just isn't the same as maybe it was as you remember being young. As you get older and you become more aware of how broken this world is and how commercial Christmas and expensive Christmas is, it seems like the magic and joy of our youth just changes. I mean, isn't that like the plot of every single Christmas movie as an adult trying to recapture this childlike feeling? I always make in my head this perfect picture as a dad of what I want Christmas to look like for my family, yet it never seems to live up to that. I envision in my head this scene from a special Hallmark movie, and what I get is more like a dark comedy. It's just not quite what I envision. I imagine this beautiful Christmas morning, the snow falling, the smell of food in the air, my kids just being so excited at these gifts. In reality, what I get is one kid who's like makes a face and I have to like say, tell grandma, thank you. You know, like that that should be obvious. And then my wife and I are exhausted because we stayed up late wrapping gifts. And so at some point we'll get on each other's nerves. Like it's just not ever quite what I imagine in my head. This is because today, this side of eternity, you and I celebrate Christmas as one's dealing with the aftermath of an unfortunate condition. Now, our condition was cured when the first advent ended and our Messiah came and saved us. He was a better, more spotless lamb than any Zechariah had ever seen as a priest. And he was a far greater priest than Zechariah could have ever been. His mouth was shut not because of his lack of faith, but he voluntarily shut his mouth as the great high priest and he climbed up on the altar himself and became the perfect lamb. Because that's true, I have been cured, but I still deal with the effects of my flesh being born broken. My faith wearies, my heart breaks, and I am prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. However, the promise of Advent is that one day this will be no more. This is where the joy of this season comes from. For when the second and final Advent ends, we will be restored. Like Elizabeth we will spend eternity basking in the presence of God's precious remedy once and for all. You see, Christmas disappoints when I forget its purpose. Christmas, this side of eternity, is to point me to the day when disappointment will be no more. That's what it exists to do. It's a small morsel of a day that will one day come. This is why Advent's a big deal because we need to remember this truth. With that in mind, let us celebrate this season to the very best of our ability. I'm all about it. Let's do all the parties. Let's do all the stuff. Let's enjoy Christmas as much as we can and celebrate to the absolute fullest. But remember, Christmas is not meant to be perfect, but merely to point to the day that will be. Let's pray to that end.